I, I didn't realize that um, uh, CD Projekt Red, the, the Polish video game company, the development company mm-hmm. that made Cyberpunk, um, was publicly traded. They are on some stock exchange, European stock exchange or something like that. And their stock price has plummeted, I think, like 35% or something since uh, the game, like all the bad news came out about the game. Um, <laughs> but like my theory on this stuff is always like any kind of creative output corporation like be it a movie production company or like a video game, you know, like Ubisoft, like re- those really big video game companies, if they're publicly traded, they're on this insane, like constant profit generating treadmill, right? Mm-hmm. Which which is kind of relevant to our, like our conversation here about startups and, you know, the things that go well and wrong in startups. But like they constantly have to make more money year over year to raise the stock price, get their bonuses, make stockholders happy, that kind of shit, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the scale for c- cyberpunk is pretty big. It's, it's not like the largest game. It's not like a GTA, but it's like trying to reach GTA level quality and scale. And the game they made before this was The Witcher 3, which is a very successful video game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, I think they like almost quintupled in size. They went from like 200, 200 people to like 1,100 Oh, uh, employees in like you know like over a bunch of years but like they they blew up really quickly and uh-huh. the pressure to get the game out like you know before christmas and all that stuff it leads to all that crunch time uh you know crappiness that you hear about um in the movie industry and in the video game industry and like all the bad labor practices that come from that and you end up producing a bad product right at, at the end of the mm-hmm. day because you had to get the thing out in order to get the money in the bank in order to make the quarter and all this bullshit. So right, that's, right. that's really why this game is not as, as good as it can be. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, how do you, how do you like it otherwise? I think it's, I think it's actually pretty fucking good. Like I, I'm a huge, so this game is like um, really a <laughs> manifestation of a, of a, a pen and paper role-playing game that I used to play back in high school called Shadowrun. Um, oh, I don't know that. Like, okay. Yeah, it's like it's like D and D, but in the cyberpunk kind of world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this game is like the first really big triple A manifestation. There's been a bunch of manifestations of Shadowrun as a game, but this is like the first one that's like a triple A title. Um, and so like the world I'm familiar with, like everything is kind of just like a riff on this world that I used to, you know, nerd out nerd out in in high school, uh, you know, 15 plus years ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it's like finally seeing it manifest as like a really enjoyable video game. And I, I, I overlook all the bugs and like imperfections and like the things that they've cut out and so on, right? Just because I enjoy uh-huh. the setting so much. So I think it's well done in that regard. But like, it's also a clusterfuck of like, you know, I came across like a, a bunch of game breaking bugs where you just can't, you can't progress because they screwed something up, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, yeah, no, I've I've been following this uh, Twitter this Twitter thread of um, hilarious bugs that people have been finding in <laughs> yeah. the game. Yeah, there's yeah. one that's uh, that's I, I don't this one cracked me up so hard. Um, it's uh, it's someone saying I swear I have no way to prove this, but I shot someone, and when her b- body dropped, she turned into a patio set, a three piece patio. <laughs> set. And it was just a snapshot of like a patio set, like 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 uh, like patio furniture. Yeah, yeah, and like I like my mind is blown. And then another person was like, "My car spawned inside another car." (laughs) (laughs) There was a point in the game when I I spawned like in the drive. I was a passenger in a car, and I spawned 
in the driver's seat, like inside mm-hmm. the person who is driving. And so mm-hmm. like when you're inside of a 3D model, you can like see its eyeballs, like because they're, they're oh. two like spheres, right? Very mm-hmm. disturbing. <laughs> very, very disturbing. <laughs> also, this game's kind of, it's kind of accidentally and inadvertently turning pretty like cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the sense that like everything is kind of like fucked it's up. It's chaotic. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a total message. Like capitalism will screw you. Everything's kind of mm-hmm. falling into dystopia. Um, and the, the story itself is actually revolves around like being anti corporate, basically, right? Because there's these big corporations <laughs> in the future, and you're supposed to be like this kind of rebel fighting against them, that kind of stuff. So it's very fitting in that sense. You're correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I noticed that for for a few other games. Like uh, I'm a big Metal Gear Metal Gear fan. Mm-hmm. Me, me too. Um, and the, yeah, um, and it was it was crazy to uh, to play like building Mother Base. I love that. You know the storyline's pretty great. You know it's all about you mm-hmm. know uh, like fight. There's a there's a huge shadowy system that you have to kind of rise up against, and you need a team. So you need to build out. You're, you're kind of you're, you kind of become like um, your own little mini country, basically. Right. Yeah. And the storyline is, you know, you're being surveilled, you're being uh, oppressed, um, uh, all of this crazy stuff. And then, uh, so the game itself was fantastic. And then I read about all of the horrible labor practices at Kojima, at, at Kojima <laughs> Productions. It's it's yeah. crazy stuff. Like, uh, like, um, like there would be, like for some, some of the coders, there would be cameras behind their heads, like affixed to their screens. Like, I'm sorry, not affixed to their screens, but... Uh, tr- trained on pointed at the screens screens and the back the head of the coder um and this was to measure productivity so people aren't taking too many breaks uh so they can measure you know that you're at your desk enough uh your output etc yeah yeah, and it's like that's gotta be that's gotta have been such a mind trip for for these developers um so we're like yeah i I can also imagine it's We're making a game about how awful, um, how horrible the system is, and how much how it's ultimately doomed to fail if you overly control your subjects. Got it. Okay, <laughs> I'll get right, right on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also <laughs> imagine that the uh, the surveillance is also like to prevent like theft and leaks and shit like that because they're so mm-hmm. fucking paranoid all the time, right? Like these mm-hmm. these video game companies. They, they they have like they, just like a good movie they have these big twists and so on in the story and they don't want any of that shit to get out beforehand mm-hmm. um, so they go through all sorts of insane stuff and not just not just games right but also like like uh, everything at, at tech like, companies mm-hmm. right tech companies, like it's always a huge movies huge deal when leaks happen and stuff yeah mm-hmm. so i can imagine there's that that aspect to it as well yeah but yeah i did, I did hear bad things about kojima uh, unfortunately despite the they put out masterpieces, but like you really don't get to see the the actual like literal blood and sweat mm-hmm. that goes into some That's, of the stuff, right? That turns oddly like uh, it it it's really strange. Like I feel like video games, knowing where they came from, it's always been a little counterculture. It, it tries to be subversive. Uh, yeah, I would say in general, uh, even though it digs into some really. Uh, like it digs into the dark side of human nature, like violence, um, sex, fantasy, all of that stuff. Uh, but I would say that on the whole, like it, it as an industry, it tends to lean, it tends to get very excited about relatively progressive themes in in a lot of their mm-hmm. in their work. Um, 
So it's really, it's really weird to see the, how the video game industry sits. So um, how it fits into a very corporate mindset, you know, where profits are king, uh, deadlines have to be met. Everything is driven by profit. Um, it's a, it's a been a really weird time for video games, I think, especially with the rise of the triple A productions, you know, which is basically yeah. like you know the Marvel model, but for video games. Um, yeah. The rise, the rise of triple A, the rise of um, esports e and streaming. Um, Adam, and I actually had a really great conversation, just like a phone call, kind of like this, where we, mm -hmm. were, we we didn't record it, unfortunately, but just like, like to talk about esports and the insane explosion, right? Because in some ways, like esports for games is like the part of games becoming like professional sports, and you know, with it, all the bad things that come with professional sports, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and you know, the the rise of triple A titles is, is video games adopting the kind of like Hollywood style movie production um, development and practices, right. With all the good and bad that comes with that. So, you know, it, it, but there was a time, like to your point about it being kind of subversive back in the day, it wasn't like this, right. Back in the day, it was like, you know, the story of like, you know, doom being made it was a bunch of guys, not a garage, but like, you know, a very scrappy group of people mm -hmm. putting together some extraordinary, you know, kind of world changing content or media or entertainment and then it eventually gets sucked in and turned into a big corporation right like mm -hmm. you know it became id software and then that got bought out and so on and now it's like this massive thing mm -hmm. it puts out huge games yeah but, uh, yeah it's kind of lost that right and like indie titles like even even indies can become kind of corporate as well I'd say, I, I think um, so there's just this trend across uh across all branches of uh of entertainment it's just the same story i recently found yeah. out that like an indie movie which i always thought was going to be like um like basically just a film student with a camera right with a kind of crappy right. camera just doing his thing kind of trying to pushing the boundaries um turns out an, a a movie up to like 50 million dollars can be considered indie so when we talk about like uh, Sundance, $50 million. $50 okay. million. Yeah, with some creative accounting maybe. I don't know. But like in total, the total tab for this movie can be $50 million and still be considered indie. Uh, so of course, let me tell you like the, the yeah. fancy, like like uh, the festival circuit and everything, the ones that tend to steal the show uh, are going to be the ones at the upper end of that price range as opposed to, you know, the lower end. So it's it's very very few people yeah. who are truly independent who are actually making these movies. But you know, occasionally you also have these movies that like get made for some small amount, right? Mm -hmm. Eleven million bucks or something like that, mm -hmm. and they they make a huge <coughs> multiplier. This is actually very apt, right? When we're talking about VC backed startups, it's right because you have yeah. some of these studios that like bet on like dozens and dozens of small low budget films usually very kitschy action films with like bad cg or like often like lo-fi horror films like found footage films mm -hmm. like paranormal activity that that movie right that series mm -hmm. started off as the, the the greatest success story in this kind of mode of making a movie for like six million dollars and then like getting it to the box office mm -hmm. and then making like a billion dollars, not a billion, I think it was like hundreds of millions off of it mm -hmm. and getting like what is, you know, a 1000 X return or whatever on, on the it's film. true. Yeah. Right. But, but you have these studios that like actually actively try to make a lot of these shit films and put them out there and, and try to reap the, the multiplier, mm -hmm. right. Rather than the, the Disney model, the Marvel model of like, we're going to put, or, or in the game case of video games, like the rockstar model of like, we're going to spend 
like half a billion dollars on production and then make two billion off of it, hopefully, right? right? Um, which leads to a whole bunch of other issues too. Right. So, so I mean, like budgets are straining. So if you got to put down like a billion just to get out the gate, um, there's a lot riding yeah. on this. Um, so I wonder if we're going to see more of these. Sure. I kind of like the cyberpunk catastrophe, and I think it's safe to call this a a, a pretty big. Uh, like people are going to be writing about this, this for for a while. Um, it kind of- even even the onion the onion has made fun of it. The onion has put out a parody <laughs> right. uh, article. Okay, about it. so, so yeah, it's, it's legit it's now. Mainstream. Once once the onion skewers yeah. you, it's over. It's 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 a thing now. Uh, I wonder if we're going to. I, I actually right. wonder if we're going to see more or less of these kinds of catastrophes. Um, well, I don't know because like these the, every fucking major AAA title that comes out, you have people from the you know whistleblowers and whatever from the studios. Mm-hmm talking about the last big one i remember was like red dead redemption 2 a couple mm-hmm. years ago right and like all the crunch they went into to put the game out um every time you hear about all these fucking bad practices and it, it just keeps repeating itself so i haven't seen any i understand like okay this is this one was particularly bad but i haven't seen any kind of evidence of improvement mm-hmm. you know so, so terrible um, like tabor, you know, terrible labor practices um really heavy-handed um i mean they they do fantastic work when they're allowed to work but almost it feels like it almost feels like it's creative working in spite of the system not as a result of the system um it hugely rushed time what, what do you mean by in spite of, like like creativism like the artists the like designers, they're doing the a writers, i feel like they're doing a fantastic job but the like their work is not properly uh, um like the business the managed. yeah managed so the business side of the uh the production schedule uh undercuts their ability yeah. to do their job to the fullest yeah or or the leadership is bad and you end up producing all sorts of stuff that people don't mm-hmm. want like don't you know like imagine you're, you're an artist you're like your job is to like paint assets or make make like 3d assets like you know desks and tables and buildings mm-hmm. and stuff like that and you just get like this list of shit you have to make because it is like that doesn't make any sense it doesn't get used because the designers that asked you to make them didn't really have a plan because everything was kind of put together in a mishmash like un- unorganized mm-hmm. manner you know, just like in software, right? Like building shit that people don't want to use. Yeah, but it's know? like make work um, stuff. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, like bureaucratic. Yeah, or, or you're misdirected, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, it could it could come. I mean, you can be small and make mistakes that way too. I think because because I went through it sure. with my company. Well, we'll get into that. But like, it it's possible that you know you you end up wasting you know eleven hundred people at this at this company all working on essentially this mm-hmm. one game. I think, um, effectively on one game and. It's, a lot of it was cut a lot of it was um maybe n- never used whenever mm-hmm. hear about it right or a lot of it was like too buggy to mm-hmm. appreciate um at, at the same time like the nature of making games is kind of and movies too is kind of crazy because like you have these artists that spend tons of time like you know uh painting painting graphics producing audio like all that stuff and then like you know imagine you spend hours like making the furniture in a room and the, a, a player like dashes right through it in two <laughs> seconds and like that furniture you made appears nowhere else in the game like just think about the you know the the amount of appreciation of the art or or creativity yeah, you put out there yeah, right absolutely. versus um you know the effort you put into it like, like my, my my brother-in-law works in in movies he does like 3d animation stuff and like he on a big he works in big movies like big 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 titles like marvel movies and stuff like that and he'll spend like three months working on like a literally like a eight second Mm. scene 
right? And like he'll tell us what's seen it as so we'll look out for it and we can like appreciate and clap for him <laughs> and so on and wait for his name in the, t- uh-huh. in the credits and stuff. But like for, for most people, like you may just you might just be doing like, you know, the dust effects in some like car chase scene and no one will even fucking know that you had yeah. your fingerprint on it. Right. So it's kind of weird that the, the kind of the, um, dislocation of the creative and the producer from the appreciation of the consumer, the audience, and, and so Escape on. Escape from plan A. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, this time I'm your host. This is Jess. I've got uh, Philip here. So um, I we haven't heard from him in, a, in quite a while. So yeah. Hey, Philip, how's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, you know, COVID okay. So um, so what, what can you do, right? So anyway, so what we what we wanted to talk about today is uh, Philip had some ha- has been going through a career milestone. So we want uh, in his industry, which is uh, tech. So we just kind of want to talk through that, um, shoot the breeze on on video games, because what else do you talk about in these unprecedented times? So yeah, so uh, so Phil, what's been going on? A uh, whole lot actually, but. I guess now not a whole lot because I've been as of today a uh, couple of days off from my my startup. Um, for for a bit of context, I've been um, working at a startup that I I kind of co-founded with a couple of friends uh, for almost half a decade now, so five years. Um, I think Jess, you probably know some of the context, but I'll kind of go over a little bit of what what the history was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of insane because um, I haven't really like the last couple of days I've been like completely off work, like no more. I deleted the email app basically off my phone. I, I don't have to work on any more shit. Um, they actually kept me on for like a week longer than my my end date because there was just more so much stuff to do. And it felt like I wasn't <laughs> ever going to get away from it. But now it's finally mm-hmm. done. And that's a big deal. I don't know if you've ever gone through this kind of thing, but it's a big deal because I feel like I haven't really had a break like this where I don't have to think about like, you know, because when you're on vacation, you still have a job, you have to think about like, oh, and like next Monday, I get back to the office and I have to like, you know, go through emails and go to the, you know, have meetings and like whatever, catch up on the shit that I missed, right? It's still kind of um, uh, weighing on you the entire time you're off. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first time for me that it's like, it's like off, off for almost a decade, right? Because basically what happened was out of college, I got a job at a, uh, a big, big tech um, fan company at Google, uh, actually. And worked there for five years, had the itch to do a startup, and I eventually joined a couple of friends who just started a company. And I had left on, like, I left Google on a Monday. And then on the Tuesday, I, like, flew to New York and, like, joined my buddies, you know, in, in New York and just started this company, like, immediately, like, no break, no, no vacation, no time off, no time really to even think about the decision I had made, which I had made, you know, a month prior to actually joining them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just went right into it. And then from then till now, it's been five years of like a lot of crazy shit uh, at the company. And then finally it 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 ended. Wow, that's, <laughs> um, that's been pretty nonstop then. I mean, you didn't really get any chance to catch your breath after, you know, 
what was basically your first job out of college. Yeah. Uh, right into startup land. And then now that that run has just now concluded. That's a pretty weird feeling, right? Yeah, it's strange. I don't, I don't even know. Like, it's I don't, I don't feel yet like I'm, you know, I still have, I still am, am thinking about work on occasion, right? Like the last couple of days, it's like it pops into my mind, like, oh, I should have done this or like, oh, I wish I did this bit better. And there's, you know, there's some feeling of, um, uh, I don't know, especially because it's something that you, you, like I kind of started essentially with a couple other guys and grew into a company of like three dudes, not in a garage, but like in a, in a essentially a, a dorm room. Um, cause one of my, one of my uh, co-founders was, uh, uh, doing his MBA at Yale at the time, um, into a, I think about 19 person company. Mm-hmm. Right. So we hired like six or seven people in, in Canada and Toronto here. And we hired like uh, nine or eight people in New York and, and a bunch of different places remote in, in the U.S., like um, east, West Coast to East Coast kind of thing. So um, in that sense, a bit of achievement, like, you know, getting getting a bunch of people employed, doing what I think is pretty was pretty interesting work. Um, but uh, but like, yeah, like a lot of hard work for myself and, and the two co-founders over the last five years, uh, in addition to growing the company. Uh, and haven't really had a break till now because even even when I was working like at, at in big tech, right? Like I I didn't really take that much vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would, you know, you'd get like your three to five weeks off uh, a year, and I would take maybe on average like a week and a half to two, maybe, and like have one kind of bank over or get paid out separately or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, and I I never felt like someone who was, you know, an insane like work addicted person who would spend you know, more than the requisite eight or nine hours a day working. Like, you know, like you hear at startups, it's 10 to 12 hours plus. I didn't do that that much. Like there was a bit of that. There was crunch and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but to, to do it, you know, for that long straight and to not take a lot of vacation and then to suddenly be be done with it, it's like kind of getting off like heroin or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, and still, still kind of think about it because you, you, you kind of maybe want more. I don't know. But uh-huh. I'm also very very much so done with this company done with the industry um not not necessarily tech but like the the industry that we're in food tech uh, mm-hmm. specifically because we built we built stuff for restaurants um like just don't want to do that anymore um and ready to move on but not really sure what that is just yet so yeah. i mean so i mean these are both huge uh huge moves right one is uh one is co- is working for google you know like one of the, if not the preeminent tech company on the scene right now. And you kind of went from that to kind of the opposite of that, right? The scrappy startup yeah, uh, that literally starts in someone's, you know, pr- you know, prototypical basement or something, right? right. So, so the opposite of a Google. Um, and so, I mean, so that's a, that's an interesting, I, I've never worked for a big company. Um, that was a kind of an intentional move on my part and, and I'm happy with it. Um, but it's also very curious to see, to, uh, to think about the perspective of someone who did both in, uh, very intensely and pretty much sounds like for the same, roughly the same amount of time too. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is there, is there one experience you would prefer over the other? I don't, I wouldn't say, Looking there's back? A, I wouldn't say there's an experience I prefer over the other, but I would, I would, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at describing what the difference is because I get asked it a lot. It's like, Oh, you left this huge, like, you know, 50, 60,000 person tech company to start a company uh-huh. with two other guys. Right. Like, what is that like? What, what's the difference uh, in, in what you do at those two places? And I've always described it as like, 
the impact is different in that um, at Google, you have this kind of very like horizontal impact where you work on a tiny little feature, mm-hmm. but like one, literally 1 billion people get to see it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at, at a startup, you, you get to like, you know, and, and then we're talking about like, you know, programming, software development, right? Right. UX design, like that kind of like, you know, uh, cre- like creation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, at a startup, you are doing that same kind of work, but you 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 own the entire thing. Like you have built the entire thing, right? It's much more vertical rather than horizontal. Um, you built the entire thing, but but much fewer people get to see it, right? Um, I think in, in the case of our company, I guess probably like tens of thousands of people have have used our our, our product, um, but uh, it, it's just different, right? It's, it's like depth versus breadth. Right in terms of the impact you you have, yeah, um, and there's you know like one of the, they're they're kind of satisfying in different ways, right? right. Yeah. Um, like it's it's cool for me to like when I was at Google like be able to literally point to my friends like hey like we you know I built this feature you can check it out like it's in you know whatever Gmail or Chrome or whatever oh, just, product right just pull out your phone you'll see it right there yeah yeah pull your phone you can see it right there it's like it's on the fucking internet mm-hmm. whereas at a startup it's like most people don't even understand what I'm doing because like it's in some niche industry at launched at some some like restaurants that like you know are american for example so all my canadian friends have no idea what i'm up to right so it's 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 quite different um in that sense uh i don't know if i prefer one or the other right but like they they have their ups and downs in, in those two different cases in those two different ways yeah i imagine uh, what you're what you're drawn to is more related to your personality what you're working on what kind of impact you want to have like some products just uh just don't have the like not every company can be google and i think it's kind of a mistake to um to act like that is the motivation for every single company that is present in the tech scene yeah and and i would also say like i mean kind of related to our conversation about video games right and being in, a, in like a video game or a movie production company right if you're working a big triple a title or you're working on like a big like avengers scale movie you you get to touch a tiny bit of it but like you know, tens of millions of people will watch, will pay money to watch that movie, mm-hmm. right? But if you're working on like an indie flick, it's a different scale. A lot less people will see it, but you may have much more involvement in the scripts or the effects or the whatever right? Uh, that's involved in your, the movie. Your imprint so will like, be like a that. much bigger part of the finished product. But also your attachment to, like the attachment of your, your labor to the outcome and what, you know, society gets to appreciate of, of the stuff that you did as, a, as an individual. Uh-huh. Is different too. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Same parallel. I definitely had more of a. Um, I guess it's the. Uh, um, I wanted to have uh, depth of experience, so mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of, like like so I did want to have more of an impact on a smaller company. Um, so I'm pretty happy with that decision. It's a. Uh, it's just fun to see you know what it's like on the other side of the aisle for a little bit. Yeah, because what you what you told me about you what you've done is is definitely a lot smaller scale, but also some more kind of like invention, innovative stuff, like more kind of like you know, because we're we're building stuff that like runs in restaurants is pretty understandable, like touchscreen software that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But you are working on things that are a bit a bit more sciencey, a little bit more um, you know R and D kind of oriented. 
Yeah, right? yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's just a different working environment. Um, so it's always fun to have these conversations with people um, because I always figured uh, I always got the feeling that people outside the industry had a very uh, monolithic view of what what life on the inside is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, there are a lot of different kinds of experiences, even under the umbrella of the same industry. Yeah, and and also like how much it it gets kind of um, appreciated by other people. I think to some extent, right? Yeah. Like, sometimes you can work in something in a company, big or small, but it's very skunk works or experimental, and it never sees the light of day. But mm-hmm. you may still, as an individual, like get a lot of uh, enjoyment and like satisfaction um, out of doing it out of the invention out of the work um or in some cases you may work in something for a really long time it doesn't get launched and you feel like you wasted a, a bunch of your life <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. right? yeah it, it it really does depend on the subject matter and, and maybe this gets into you know like why did i end up leaving this startup right despite having built this kind of baby from from scratch and worked in it for five years is like you, you can also work in something that you may believe on b- believe in early in like when you started the thing or when you joined the company, mm-hmm. but then time passes, like your, your perception of the world passes, your politics maybe change and so on. In my case, that was the case. Um, and then you decide like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yes. Well, like I don't, let's talk about that. So, I mean, this is, this is, ba- this is basically your second rodeo um, right out of college. Um, I know that I, for me, like my first handful of jobs, like I stayed, I stayed too long. Um, like, point where i was getting mm-hmm. uh like intellectual fulfillment or anything like i was attached to the team i just wasn't ready for a change i wasn't sure what was on the other side uh, so yeah. i always stayed too long and i uh i remember someone saying like um like there's just a saying i don't know like who says it or where or how common it is but something like your first relationship always lasts like six months too long um i got that kind of feeling so uh Curious, um, what what got you started thinking that uh, it was time to leave? Both, uh, you know, five years ago at Google, and uh, and this time. Uh, honestly, this is going to sound. I think it's a really tough decision to know when to step away. Yeah, well, with with Google, I think there was always the itch to do something much smaller. Um, that was because prior to even leaving college and doing work, I had done a bunch of internships at different size companies, and the one that had the most impact on like my thinking mm-hmm. and like where I thought like the exciting work was in tech was at a small startup um, in Toronto. And uh, it felt like that kind of impact there where you get much more responsibility, like over the entirety of what the company does was very appealing to me. Um, but also to some extent, like I have to be perfectly honest about it right now, right? Like there is also the, the, the chase, uh, chasing the allure of the startup world and like the possible fame and riches that come from it, Right. Um, mm-hmm. my startup started in, in 2015, which is, I think a little bit like towards the mid middle to late stage of this startup kind of wave. Um, but there's still a lot of like hype and excitement, you know, like a bunch of big IPOs that happened before there's a bunch upcoming, there's still some kind of like gold rush feeling to the tech industry, which I think in the years after, like certainly after 2017 started to wane, right. When the tech lash, which we talked, we talked about the tech lash a whole bunch of times on this pod, right. But like you know, when that started picking up, um, that feeling definitely started waning. Um, but, but you know, with that was what drove me to leave Google. I think what drove me to leave the startup is, is much more complicated. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons we'll, we'll get into all of them. But I think if I were to 
to kind of sum it up, I think one one actually one big factor was was uh, was Plan A. I think um, really, really, yeah. Which really is like you know, it's not like doing doing the website, doing the pause with you guys, right, <laughs> on occasion or whatever, right. But it's also like everything around it, right? Like meeting you, meeting the team, meeting everyone, having it's all the conversations we have, right? right. The ones we've had ourselves um, as a group of editors. And also the ones we've had with all of the the community we built with like the Patreon, Patreon, uh, Discord, and so on, right? Like that that process, you know, basically between 2016 and now has completely changed my feelings about like politics and impact and mm-hmm. where people should spend their time, right? Um, and it led me to basically realize, and this is the line I tell people now when they ask me, like, why did you quit your startup just over the last week of me telling people is like, I'll just tell them, like, I don't want to spend, I'm done with spending my time making fast food CEOs richer. <laughs> right? That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what I'm doing. Like, that's what I'm doing. Right. Like I'm, and, and like part of it is like, I'm supposed to be rich and making myself richer. Right. And, um, one thing I'll, I'll divulge is that like we kind of fucked up like our startup five years like not not great traction in that time in terms of the amount of like effort I put in and the amount of like output i.e. equity and value I got out of it right because mm-hmm. we actually went through a bunch of um, funding rounds uh, uh, convertible note rounds right which are basically like loans from VCs um, that have fairly punishing terms attached to them. And the terms, like these convertible notes, they convert when you get your first equity round done, which we finished actually during the pandemic, um, which was a semi-successful round. But we had basically been massively diluted as as founders um, because of those notes, right? And the terms that they were attached to them. Right. Uh, they, they give, pre- they, you know, in short, they give preferences to the VCs. So the VCs get more of a chunk because they trusted us with their loans early on. Right. right prior to equity round and so like walking out of this i'm not i don't have like you know it's not like i have nothing like i have some equity in the company still it still could be worth something later on but it, it wasn't like it wasn't fuck you money it wasn't like the amount of money where you know you throw away your values right 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 to, right. to work on uh, on something that's effectively you know what we do is like we were automating some restaurant um operations which effectively is you know, getting employees fired, like getting them, like taking, automating their work, right? In in the name of producing better profits for these companies, which are fast, large fast food companies, which in turn really just leads to like big fat bonuses for the CEOs, right? And like, I'm not, I'm just not interested in spending my time doing that, right? That's the short, kind of the short answer. That's a good answer, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you can, you know, just like, you know what we talk about on plan A, like you can see why all the stuff that we talked about and like the tech series and the, the, the labor stuff that we talked about, um, like why that all has kind of influenced my decision to be like, no, fuck this shit. I don't want to, I'm five years is enough. And like, I'm not really getting anything out of it substantially anymore. So like, I'm just going to try to figure out what to spend my time on instead. Okay, there's, there's an opportunity cost calculus to it. That's uh, that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. My thinking, like my career changed too as a result of Plan A. So everyone listening really. to this, yeah, you've been warned. <laughs> we're kind of we're driving up the unemployment rate here, um, one one person at a time. One yeah, one one individual at a time. One disgruntled worker at a time. Yeah. 
uh, we are we are not uh, we're not exactly uh, type A Asians over here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's, it's it, it was kind of frustrating. So I think uh, so when when we start when we started Plan A, um, I was working um, I was working for a big um, a big healthcare insurance company, uh, like one mm-hmm. of the country's biggest, a very very small cog uh, in a in a very very big wheel. Um, mm-hmm. And just being extremely disaffected with the entire working environment. I mean, th- this wasn't my first job. Um, I work in data science. So mm-hmm. um, the idea there is uh, there's a limit to how much you can do as a small company uh, to do to be able to really up up my skills. You need a lot of data. Um, so this was, this was a career pivot for me. Um, and I just didn't, I didn't like what I was, what I was participating in. So I was brought in as part of a a relatively, uh, relatively new initiative to kind of, uh, uh, spruce up the very old crumbling infrastructure, tech infrastructure of this massive, massive healthcare provider. Um, and it was, uh, it was bureaucratic. It was extremely slow, inefficient. Uh, I did not like uh, dealing with internal politics. I didn't like mm-hmm. having to fight with uh, bad, um, bad tech, uh, like like having tech decisions made for me by people who weren't going to actually be using them, they're just uh, they're just MBAs um, underwrite trying to fill their budgets with fancy sounding words. So no part, and I wasn't really a big fan of what the the, the ultimate output of this initiative was going to be, which is both supplanting um, supplanting workers on the inside and replacing workers on the outside all in the name of right. generating profits and ultimately generating profits does mean squeezing patients um i mean you're 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 in canada which i think is a more civilized uh, healthcare system than 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 uh, us here in the states but i mean it's bit. it's just a little bit yeah it's it's brutal so i think it's one of the better healthcare providers uh, out there but that's not saying much so at some point i just had to just say you know what I, I can't be part of this. Um, I just I just can't. I would much rather be in full control over um, smaller. If it has, if it doesn't grow, that's that's uh, so be it. But I have to be I have to be doing what feels meaningful and worthwhile to me uh, versus uh, versus you know um, the resume builder that is working in for a known company. A known no. Did did it uh did it feel like part of why you left and why you were frustrated was because while you were there you did not have the ability to speak your mind? Yeah. To some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Or that uh, speaking your mind comes with uh, so many layers of uh, of politics. Like there's a yeah. I'm speaking on behalf of myself, but I also have to make my boss look good because this is a this is kind of an, its own initiative. So, and then all that gets repackaged to make her boss look better, um, and all this kind of gets just gets filtered up and up and up until uh, until they're able to regurgitate at the top end. Like Kaiser Permanente is uh, the you know one of the nation's cutting edge. Um, leaders in advances in data science for healthcare and i'm just sitting there like you're telling me to do crazy things with excel macros right now like you this this is not possible (laughs) uh i wanted data from two hospitals and they literally sent me paper 
Yeah, but they had to dress it up like it's some kind of like massive innovation, and they're at the cutting edge of. Yeah, state I'm of the like, art. whoa, whoa, whoa! We can't, like, you cannot be saying this. Like, like it's people promising things that cannot be delivered because everyone has their own stakeholder that they need to appease, um, and a boss slightly higher right. up who has even less of an idea of what's going down uh, on the ground floor than they do. Um, so it's just, it was so, it was just frustrating on so many levels, and then it's also frustrating I- to see how many smart people how many smart capable good-hearted people who wanted to do good work were also frustrated by the system yeah it's kind of frustrating because you're you're adjacent you're like you're in healthcare right so you're adjacent to you're in a industry that is doing real good especially like fucking now during the pandemic right right but even then they that didn't really override all the issues with the bureaucracy and like the you know uh, the po- politicking and all that shit that drove you insane and felt like you you couldn't be there right yeah yeah so feeling very very not in control uh of um even the day-to-day stuff i, I just didn't going from like small startup culture to big company was uh was jarring like having yeah. to be at your desk by a certain time a dress code you know the little the little court of uh, corporate office culture um, right. just did not like, you're not, you're not enabling good work by mandating that we're all in our desks at seven 30. Um, right. You just aren't. Um, so yeah. this really, archaic- it's always, it's always like, it's always like, um, it's always, you know, death by a hundred blows or whatever, right? Like a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But, but there's always things that stand out, um, when it, when it comes to someone being done with a place, wanting to leave a job. Um, I, I think that, the, the the one you know highlight from both our experiences that is worth pointing out is this like issue of principles right like leaving on like would you say you left mostly on principles or out of like just general career frustration because you weren't going anywhere or, or bureaucracy or is it was it more it was principle? it was more principle i would say and i understand and like there's a there's an element of a of a material privilege that needs to be acknowledged i think so you know these are these are well paid sure, positions um so it's more like um these are well paid positions so um it i was it was still comfortable to do so like i wasn't i wasn't risking like like my finances or the ability to mm-hmm. to progress my career in other directions by doing so um so it, it could have gone yeah. either way i could have stayed there i probably could have progressed um gone up the gone up the ladder in that direction um i could have leveraged it into into working for a, a different big company as well um right Right. But yeah, uh, likewise, likewise with my experience leaving Google too. Like people would tell me, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're leaving such like a cushy, well-paying job to do a startup. You must be so brave." I wasn't fucking brave. To some extent, it was actually a very calculated move, low-risk move. Because for one, um, the company Google would just hire you back if you came back within a year. Like no questions asked. Mm-hmm. You just you can leave, do a startup for a year. If you come back within a year, you get hired. No interviews, no nothing. Like same position, same pay as before. Right. So you always had that kind of parachute. Mm -hmm. And like also like once you have that that experience in your resume, it's not super tough in tech to get another job. It may not be the most like glamorous job, but you could kind of do it. Yeah, there's a way to leverage all of it. Yeah, you can leverage all of it. Yeah. If you if you went from a big company to a startup, then you know what's gonna show up on your resume is that wow, this guy has really seen it all. He has experience building deep and wide, right? 
um, has has subject matter experience in a right. ton of different uh, areas, all of which add up to a very well rounded. And there's you can spin it all sorts of ways. It's never you're not taking a hit to your career necessarily. Okay, but but this is why this is important is because I think that if you are in that position of call it privilege or advantage or leverage or whatever, if you have that leverage, you should be acting on principle. Yeah, right. I agree. You should be taking quote unquote risks and or or dropping something you don't want to do because you think it's shitty and following what your kind of values are are pointing you at, because there's there's some obligation to take advantage of that. And I, I think this actually gets into something that I've been wanting to talk to you on recording for some time, Jess, if we haven't mm-hmm. had to talk, a chance to talk about, which is that podcast I keep railing on, um, Badass Asian Dudes, mm. <laughs> where you've heard me rant about these guys for some time, right? Where you have this podcast that like interviews all these kind of cookie cutter, like Asian guys who are all like entrepreneurs but they do all the same fucking shit where they just like go and they do these like drop shipping like companies where they sell <laughs> wine bottle fancy racks on companies. Amazon. Yeah. yeah, wine bottle racks on Amazon, and they make a decent living, and they have to like fucking jack each other off on their podcast, talking about how cool it is that they're doing this, like living in Ho Chi Minh City with like very little money, or moving to like LA afterwards because they're done with that city, and like playing out this glamorous lifestyle. When they're, I don't, when in my opinion. Um, very frankly, like I don't think they're contributing a whole fucking lot to society, right? Like they're mm-hmm. not. I don't like. I just straight up don't think it's it's like something to aspire to. Yet they've actually developed this whole like network, this like Facebook group of guys who um, are all in the same kind of mindset, like Asian guys, right? Where they're like, I want to be like a little bit different from like the typical Asian drone who just works in the office in tech or whatever. I want to go and be an entrepreneur. But if you're going to go be an entrepreneur, like why do you be an entrepreneur in this show? Why can't you work in something that's actually societally beneficial? That's that's really the, the, the big question, right? That that especially if you are someone, because you know, like we talk about like how Asian Americans, whatever, high income, high education, that means you have some amount of privilege and some amount of like leverage to do interesting things, do mm-hmm. benefit like helpful things. Yet so many people don't take that leap to do it. Right. Yeah. I still see it as a as a as a measure of playing it safe, honestly. Um I listened to a bit of that that podcast too, and that's a this is it always struck me as like sharing uh, life hacks more than talking through like business strategy mm-hmm. or real networking. Uh like the problems they outline are, are real, right? Talking about the glass ceiling, uh racism yeah. in the workplace, um, all of that that do absolutely impact um a person in this case, you know, an Asian dude's ability to move through, you know, move up the ladder in traditional tech. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about, you know, the lack of social life, all of that. Um, you know, so these are real problems, but it seemed like their, their, their solution to that was trying to find the lowest common denominator, right? So, like, they're not doing businesses, they're making hustles. So what's going to make money right. for the lowest amount of like effort, time piggybacking on an already existing infrastructure um, to maximize the amount of money you can make uh, quickly, but not a, not a, like not even like a lot of money, just enough money to right. achieve X life goal. So it's not really it, it's not, it doesn't really maximize on anything. You're just kind of like like I. You found a way to live life on a slightly easier mode than some other people. 
But my my issue with it is that they're also dressing it up as some sort of like yeah. big achievement that other Asian guys or other people should aspire to. Mm-hmm. When it, it it is yes, it's, an, it's kind of an a slightly alternative lifestyle, alternative way of like making a living. I, I agree with that, and it's but it 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 doesn't really benefit anyone but themselves. Yet they kind of play it up as like the beyond end all of you know yeah, entrepreneurship. It's, it's not and, a model that's actually it's actually pretty. Ex- exclusionary kind of uh of lifestyle because really like are you actually suggesting like all of your listeners suddenly turn into uh uh like drop shippers out of malaysia or something like not that's not sort of i mean that's i i mean the 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 way the the way they like glamorize it it does feel like that to some extent um it it seems like they're like laughing from on top of their own like one-man pyramid scheme yeah, I mean it, it. It it really does feel a bit MLM to that to to some extent. Yeah. Because um, it and it, it's often it's often the same kind of personality type or like archetype of guy as well um, that that gets mm-hmm. into this space too. Yeah, kind of smooth, knows how to schmooze, talk, um, like comes across uh, as put together. Uh, there's this kind of like MBA ish light vibe to them. That's that's completely correct and. This is the thing, like, this is my, my frustration with them. And, you know, it's also reflective of my frustration with myself, like being at this company that I eventually ended up detesting to some extent and taking a long time to leave is like, I wish more of them took that extra leap to try to do something a little bit different outside that space, because I do think that there is a lot of merit to the, the attribute of being entrepreneurial, right? You know, you know what that means, right? In the sense of being like, willing to tackle super open-ended problems, willing to take like initiative and risk on, on issues, willing to learn on your feet, like all those kind of like attributes that come with entrepreneurialism, which I think are positive things, they get sunk into instead into, you know, VC backed startups making fucking like terrible apps mm-hmm. or into these like one man drop shipping operations that end of the day don't really end up benefiting anyone or in like in many cases end up producing any kind of sustainable business model to begin mm-hmm. with right i wish that that energy it, it feels to me again back to that concept of like opportunity cost like just a waste of human hours that is very frustrating to think about yeah you know it is i think we have a death of like a darth of imagination it's a it's a problem of imagination and uh willingness to actually think broadly uh and big like actually thinking big um, like to hear, like, I think there was, I think it was on that pod where somebody was talking about, you know, um, how it could have been a different pod entirely. So like now we're bashing two pods. Um, it, uh, but he, he was talking, they were both, uh, they were both commiserating with each other on how there were, there weren't so many big problems left to solve in tech. And my mouth just fell open. Um, like, mm-hmm. Uh, like you're not thinking very mm-hmm. carefully. Like there are so many big problems uh, that we that we have not solved, or or uh, there are so many different things to think about inside this space that no one wants to tackle, and no one has had the imagination to try to tackle. Um, and it's uh, it's frustrating to see the lack of imagination that people. And I have to think it's not it's not a matter of it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not it's not anything like innate. It's it has to be somewhat of a of a fear response, an anxiety. 
um which to yeah. me is uh, is for especially for you know people who um who are racialized in a in a white society white dominant society there's a little bit of anxiety in thinking outside that box right like if you show up as you know as um as an Asian guy, and you're suddenly like, "Hey, well, I'm, I'm I'm taking a big swing at this problem over here that no one's tackling." Uh, I think it's I, it's to me it's understandable that that's uh, that raises a bit more of a fear uh, fear response, right? Yeah, for sure, because you're you're already coming in with the the, the handicap of being a like founder of color mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Like a like an entrepreneur of color, um, which to be fair, in tech, like Asian guys are pretty effective. Like they they they're not going to do nearly as well as the white guys, but like they're pretty well represented, but you're still coming in with some kind of like internalized fear of failure. And so maybe you'd prefer to take like a safer, more understood. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I, I get, I get that. But at the same time, like recognizing that the fact that you could spend your time, like, especially if you're like bootstrapping a startup right out of your own pocket to do something like, I, I would love to see more people try to, branch outside of the like the obvious spaces yeah. right I, I i do think though like going back to what you're saying about like this idea that there's there's like no more problems to solve in tech i think all the like low-hanging fruit has been picked in terms of the stuff that like the where the money's at like in terms of like where vcs are willing to put dollar bills mm-hmm. down i think there's like obviously way more spaces that technology, especially software can tackle outside of those obvious places. Um, but because there's not a lot of attention from, you know, venture funding or from like, from like maybe even like market demand, it's hard to start those companies. I, I understand that part of it. I, I do agree that there's an additional um, uh, kind of barrier there. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're not going to, you're not going to end up finding any, any kind of gold in those spaces, like any diamonds in the rough, if you don't throw resources at it, you don't throw people, entrepreneurs, right, in those other areas that, that tech could affect. Um, because it's, it, 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 it does require more effort to, to go there. So I, I kind of get that aspect of it. But to some extent, too, like, why would you also look in a place where all the, the fruit's being picked? Uh, when you can look elsewhere, right? Because a good entrepreneur should be able to smell an mm-hmm. opportunity, right? That's definitely another attribute of an entrepreneur. And it's it's a bit wasted when you have all of them kind of pursuing the same, in this case, you know, drop ship wine rack yeah. businesses or whatever. Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a real, it's a real shame to me, a real, um, uh, to me, I, I, I wonder about the wasted potential here. Um, like I understand the fear response and not wanting to be, yeah. you know, not wanting to kind of be the tall blade of grass here. Right. Um, especially as a person of color um, right. in a, in a pretty hostile, in a pretty hostile um, industry and society at large. But if, uh, if too many of us listen to that instinct, that means that we have now ceded all of that uncharted territory to someone else. Right. So this keeps right. meaning that the pioneers um, are not, are not people like us. Right. This keeps this kind of right. seeds yeah. that space to you know to perpetuate the the myth of the uh, the uh, the the white male founder right the white male genius the, the Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. hoodie wearing and yeah. the second one is like it, it, it's yeah. it's it's comforting and safe uh, and pre- dare I say prestigious to kind of tr- try to tread um, ex- tread on tread swim in uh, already uh, existing lanes. 
right? I mean, it's sexy to kind of to start a company, to open a newspaper and, talk, and see reporting about some company that landed some obscene number from a venture capital fund. But I mean, but that's that's mm-hmm. a bit of propaganda perpetuated by the VCs themselves. That somehow scoring this uh, scoring this VC money is kind of a benchmark of success in and of itself, a big benchmark of success. Um, when a lot of times, yeah. like VCs are pretty. Uh, they're they're not out for the companies; they're out for themselves. So this can be very this can be a very predatory relationship that I think a lot of founders aren't aren't ready to uh, to see until it's too late. So that's the thing that I notice in a lot of young founders yeah. too. Um, and the third part, like maybe you can speak more. I um, uh, I know your company accepted uh, did some rounds of VC funds. So if you wanted to elaborate on that, that'd be that'd be cool too. If not, that's fine too. Um, but the third thing there is um, you if you're actually trying to if you feel the entrepreneurship bug, like you want to do something new, you want to do something actually that somebody that nobody else has done before uh, and you're ready and capable to kind of pursue. You have the skills to back that up and you want to go for it. Um, you just simply don't do it by by uh, walking in someone else's footsteps. Right. Like a generation ago. Um, nobody thought that the big department stores were going to fail, right? You didn't you didn't disrupt Sears by becoming a better Sears. Um, you di- you disrupt Walmart by becoming Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. New markets will always be risky, and nobody will want to take a chance on that at first. That doesn't mean that that territory doesn't exist, though. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like in the last decade of venture backed companies. They've a lot of people have lost that kind of um, willingness to go into an actual real frontier. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, when I think about like the VC funding and how how the cycles work and stuff, and like how um, you know the the very very much so the effects of FOMO affects um, VCs and how they where they put their money. Going back to like this this idea of like they put they put the money into places where they think there's low hanging fruit. There's always these trends, right? There's always like you know right now there's like AI, machine learning. There's like you know crypto. There's like IoT, right? Some of them might be dead already in some cases, and some some others may not be. But like it, it's for them, it's like hard to think outside of those spaces, and it's it's maybe hard for founders too because they're seeing so much funding going into like machine learning. They're like, I got to start a machine learning startup because that's where I can actually raise money, mm-hmm. right? There's a bit of a trap there. Going to my own experiences, like you know, VC is it's it's a hell of a drug. It's a, it's very much so a treadmill. Once you get on it, right? I think that one big error that we had this is just personally with with my company was that we went into this like food tech business, not really necessarily thinking too much about the business model in terms of what we were initially building and trying to like get to like a sustainable business model as a goal. Our first goal was to just raise money Mm -hmm. because we felt like we had to, you know, in order to do a successful startup, just in general, like tech startup, you had to raise money. That was just the thing you had to do. It was a default or, you know, or you had to like start somewhere, like get a foothold by getting to YC or whatever, and there was like no other way. And that was the only blueprint. We had a complete dearth of imagination, right? To use your term, um, in terms of thinking about how we could have gone about building a company from from scratch, which was a maybe one of the biggest lessons I'll take away from the last five years. Um, wish I knew it earlier. Um, but it was a tough lesson because it meant that like once we finally raised money a couple of years in, we, we got on the treadmill 
And, you know, we didn't really even have much of a sustainable model or a plan. And that led to us taking more and more uh, convertible note loans, mm -hmm. which led to more and more dilution once we actually like finished our, our first equity mm -hmm. round, mm -hmm. um, you know, which, which eventually led to like my personal dissatisfaction and, and leaving to some extent as well. Um, so like that was, a, that was like, if someone asked me like, what was the biggest lesson I learned? I think it was, that was part of the lesson was like to have a little bit more of a plan than just like, you know, we want to make big bucks in the food tech space or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there, there can be more thinking that goes into this space, um, like into what you want to do and spend your time on before diving into it. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know if you can learn those things without doing them. I, I don't mean, maybe, I guess you can read a lot of TechCrunch and avoid those mistakes or something. I don't know, but that's what we went through. And like, I'm very disillusioned by it at this point, right? Like VCs, like I'm not, I'm not a fan of that model anymore. Mm -hmm. For a bunch of reasons but i think that the bigger reason coming out of it goes back again to principles like i don't like the shit that vcs invest money in um i i am glad to see that vcs are starting to invest more money in spaces that like are maybe a little bit more beneficial to society and the planet mm -hmm. right like for example um like biden winning the election is actually a big deal in some case for like green tech right because he's certainly going to put much more emphasis on on green tech, he'll never call it the Green New Deal, but like on, on that's that area of like public investment than say a Trump would. Mm -hmm. So like for anyone interested in that space, like that's a positive in that direction. Right. But VCs, you know, they're starting to follow their, you know, but for the most part, they're still fixated on like, you know, SaaS companies, apps, all this fucking bullshit, which where I where I personally think a lot of um the low-hanging fruit has been plucked, at least where their eyes are laser focused. Yeah, it's the lowest... I mean, the lowest hanging fruit has definitely been picked bare, in my opinion. And I think the model is actually turning destructive. Like, uh, I'm sure you've seen... Uh, I'm sure you saw the news about DoorDash nearing IPO. You know, its three founders are billionaires now. Um, same yeah. for Uber. Um, all of these... Uh, and, the, and the common denominator for these recent wave of uh, unicorns reaching maturity, maturity being the the all almighty IPO, is we're just reinventing new classes of slave labor. Like, that's it. If you actually talk about what's what you're actually disrupting, <laughs> you're disrupting people's yeah. ability to make a living wage. That's what... That's the innovation here. Um not only that, but you're also le legitimizing and like fueling this industry that is crushing restaurants and crushing these like workers who, you know, do the deliveries mm -hmm. for these restaurants. So it's right. Like it, it is well known how bad their, their models are for restaurants uh, in terms of the fees they take and like the, the punishing kind of requirements they have for, uh, for the, the, the delivery uh, people. Like it's, it's pretty fucking bad. And, and we're rewarding that by making these people. Yeah, so more people, more smart people who come out of these very, uh, these very prestigious schools, the Stanford's basically Silicon Valley's, uh, you know, uh, labor labor mill. Um, mm -hmm. They're just going to be looking at that. They want to be the next uh, DoorDash. They want to be the next Uber. They want to, and there has that's not an that's not a sustain a that's not a sustainable business model. And B, do you do we want it to be? I I'd say. The answer is no, a very emphatic no. Um, and I, it's it's pretty disheartening that over here in California, you know, where Uber is based, um, we passed Prop 22 not too long ago, um, which yeah, exempts uh, exempts these um, 
these app drivers and deliverers from being classified as employees. So they're exempt from benefits, exempt from worker protections. Uh, they're all they're all considered to be independent contractors. Um, this is this is absolutely killing. And, and my, my understanding is that, that Uber and Lyft put like a fuck ton of money into like mm-hmm. lobbying yeah, and marketing. Yeah, something like 200 million, something like 10 times more than what it would have cost them to actually provide like overtime pay or some measure of like, like, uh, like health insurance, health coverage, even for like catastrophic stuff. Uh, it's, it's obscene. And, and who, who is, who feel, who, who's paying for that? It's, it's the people who put money into mm-hmm. their IPOs, right? Yeah, like it's all paid for by Lyft right? and, and, and their original investors mm-hmm. before that. I mean, and they, I mean, it's so brazen too. They, I saw this in, uh, in all of their, um, their promotional material to, to, you know, for prop 22 saying, Oh, if you don't, if we don't pass prop 22, um, you know, the, the increased costs are going to cause rate increases. Um, so, you know, better, better vote. Yes. It's, it's really appealing to, yeah, it's appealing to individuals who use Uber, you know, on a regular basis and feel like, oh, I don't want my fucking fares to go from 12 bucks to 13 mm-hmm. bucks or whatever, right? Like, um, which is, you know, I understand like you want, you, we've gotten kind of addicted to how much cheaper, I don't know if the prices have gone up in, in like LA, but like certainly in, in Toronto, like it's still way cheaper to take an Uber than, uh, mm-hmm. than like a cab. Right, we've gotten so addicted to these prices that were subsidized entirely by venture capital and like PE firms and stuff um, that like the notion of it going up would let us would make us vote against, you know, labor rights mm-hmm. and worker rights. And the kicker of it is they raised those rates like two weeks after the proposition got passed anyway. So it didn't. Even, <laughs> I I mean I that's do. I think that's when DoorDash uh, did its latest rate hike to like like thirty percent or or slightly higher than that in some cases. I mean it's it's absolutely obscene, um, and it's not a matter of morality either. These companies are bleeding money on every single ride, every single delivery they make here. This is right. entirely an artificially propped up industry. So there's no element of sustainability in this model at all. I think their goal is to get to a monopoly and then eventually slash like, you know, development teams and so on. Like, I think that's, that where, that's where the end game is if they are ever to get to profitability. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's not pretty, right? Cause on the way there, you end up destroying a lot of people's uh, livelihoods and, and so on. I guess at least Uber's not trying to automate like, you know, taxis anymore right with self-driving cars they got rid of that division <laughs> i mean they couldn't they couldn't sustain the that was their whole like business pitch for a really really long time uh that was their part that, that was actually part of their investor pitch um so everyone knows that they are charging way too little for rides and paying drivers way too much yeah. for profitability yeah um, their entire pitch for like 10 years was it just keep giving us money. We're just, we're just, uh, waiting it out until we can get, uh, driverless cars. And then That's the labor right. part of this equation just completely falls off. Yeah. Um, and then that, that, that illusion just completely fell over too. I mean, we're not, we're nowhere, we are not getting autonomous uh, vehicles anytime soon. So, I mean, so Uber passed along its, uh, you know, its fig leaf of a uh, autonomous driver division. That's right. Um, so now we're just at we're back at square one. Then, so we still have a company that's ble- losing money off of every single ride, uh, and their big problem is that they are charging way too little um, 
for their rides and they're paying their drivers way too much. And the only way that that shortfall is plugged in is with private equity and venture capital money. This is kind of high level, like macro um, or, or meta message here that like in the last 10, 15 years of the rise of tech and software, our lives haven't really changed that much, right? Like we all have these things in our pockets now where we can like, whatever, talk to our friends wherever we are, like watch videos, whatever. But like effectively speaking, like things have not changed for the better that much, you know, because there's all these problems that come with like smartphones and and ubiquitous tech as well, right? Like just being like this this addiction or like, you know, um, like cyberbullying or whatever, or like, you know, uh, all the issues that come with like social media, right? And FOMO and whatnot. Like it, it feels like, there's so much more negative weight than there is any positive weight that basically it it equal like it zeroes out any kind of benefit that has come from this revolution of the iPhone that started in 20, 2007. Um, I think that that kind of meta message to some extent has led to also my like disillusion with being in a high tech startup and wanting to kind of get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know if, if if I'm completely out of tech. For sure, like I'm, I'm trying to figure that out over the next month and a bit. But like, there's definitely this this feeling of like, oh, like what has actually improved in our lives? Um, you know, <laughs> all this. That's a depressing question. I think about that a lot, and the answer is, I think it's gotten way worse. Um, just generationally, we're both we're both millennials, um, and so you know, the entirety of my working life has kind of been a story of decline, actually. Yeah. Um, in terms of the actual work that I'm that I'm that I'm doing, the work that I'm able to do, what kind of system there is for uh, for for personal and professional growth, right. intellectual growth. Uh, for me, it's just been a it's been a long period of having to dodge uh, pitfalls to kind of dodge these giant holes. If I if I fall in, I suddenly just fall victim to some fad that's going around, like I we need to break out of this VC driven model of quote innovation. Uh, VCs funded Juicero. I don't know if any, um, may that name live in infamy. That's right. Um, so for anyone who is not, who was not reading TechCrunch in like 2014 or whatever it was, Juicero is this, uh, basically it was supposed to be like a Korig, but for juice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you put in, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a machine that you plop in these, uh, bags, pre prepackaged bags of juice and it would squeeze it and you would have your nice fresh cup of, um, of green juice whenever you want it. Um, it, and it turns out a one, and then one reporter happened to notice that when her machine broke, she just took the pack and was like, hey, wait a minute, hold on a second. So she just snipped one end of it and squeezed it and actually got more juice out of it just by squeezing the pack. <laughs> oh, I didn't know she got more juice out of it. I thought it was like yeah, effectively she, the same thing. You know, she got more juice. She did it a couple of times. And she, it turns out the machine was only squeezing like part, only squeezing a bit of it. You know, yeah, that means yeah. you get you know, you get more profit per juice bag. But the machine was fucking um, like $300 or some shit, right? Like it was, yeah, it, was in it, it was actually priced like a high end, like actual juicer. And somehow um, the business was still unprofitable. Like this yeah. blew my fucking mind. Yeah, that people paid for this. They paid for this very expensive. And of course, you know, we they were using the subscription model to really juice those numbers. The real money came in from those subscriptions to the juice packs. Um and that was the entire scam. 
did squeezing some shit. That's not like that's not even the tragedy, right? The tragedy is again, like tens of millions of inve- investment dollars and tens of thousands of like worker hours from like really smart engineers, <laughs> marketers, uh-huh. business folks, etc., completely squandered on this fucking thing that's just too pressure placed. It don't even work as well as human yeah, heads. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a it's story. Just a complete of waste of human. It's it's a waste. Yeah, it's an, yeah, and and that again just feeds back into what I said. Like I don't want to spend my hours trying to make fast food CEOs wealthier because that's what a lot of these startups are really doing. They're putting millions of dollars and like millions of like man hours into that that whole you know spiral mm-hmm. right um uh i i was actually wondering if i could change the subject a little bit because i think we've gone this thread for a bit about like the uh like the, the principal aspect of of like leaving the company mm-hmm. um i actually want to talk about this other aspect which is a bit more of a personal aspect of leaving the company and it, it too also has to do with like time spent you know with with you guys on plan a and exposed to um you know, all the stuff that we talk about. And that's that I, I didn't really realize this actually until like after I made the announcement to um, the my team, my, my co-founders at my company. And then like my experience of like my social experience with my team um, in like the, the four weeks my, before my departure um, was that I, I felt a bit like I kind of grew like tired of the people I work with. And... I, I didn't really realize it until I was kind of on the way out that this was the case because I, f- I didn't actually feel a lot of like, oh, I'm going to miss hanging out with these people, like whatever, online, right? Because it's a pandemic. But like, you know, I, di- I didn't feel a whole lot of loss there because I, I kind of like found that the people I work with, and I don't know if this is true at like all tech startup kind of environments or like tech company environments or whatever, but there's a lot of this kind of same sameness to to people in these spaces i think <laughs> yeah that just like let me give you some examples to try to illustrate what i'm saying okay so so there's two there's two aspects to this okay there's an aspect where like the 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 kind of morals and values that i had with my co-founders and maybe my co-workers but most of my co-founders didn't match up anymore and then there's the like social aspect of it where like i just kind of didn't want to talk about the same shit that they talked about all the time mm-hmm. Right, like, like we constantly, we're, we're a food tech company, so like obviously food comes up in social conversation a lot, and it's always the same kind of like posturing, like bougie posturing that goes on. Um, I think some people like on on Planet have talked about this with some of their friends. They notice that like you get into this kind of middle class, upper middle class lifestyle, and like your concerns become all the same concerns of like. Oh, like what? How should I decorate my new like condo that I just bought? Or like, oh, have you been to this great new you know uh, whatever like Filipino like Detroit style pizza place in like this hipster part of like Brooklyn that everyone goes to? Right? Like it's you know everyone like has the same kind of rough set of interests around like culture and so on mm-hmm. um, that just got really boring for me right like I, I was into it too like i was totally down with this like lifestyle of oh, going to work at like third wave coffee shops with cool interiors <laughs> and having a cortado while like banging out code on my uh-huh. macbook or you know but like i don't know it's just i i got sick of it um and it was still the same stuff that my 
coworkers would talk about on a on a daily basis. I do, you know, yeah. That that like I just don't like care about anymore. It is it, specifically the kind of like consumptive like consumption part of it, the the bouginess. Yeah, cons- like conspicuous consumption as like a proxy for personality almost. Yeah. Yes, that's yes, that's exactly it. It's like my entire personality is that like I like fancy coffee and I like going to like increasingly obscure ethnic restaurants because you know we're based in New York and Toronto, so there's a lot of restaurants from all sorts of mm-hmm. people, which is great, right? But when you spend all your time kind of like build your personality around personality around like discovering these places when really just read on the same fucking blog as everyone else in the city, that it just all blends into the same kind of gray mush. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And like I don't know, if like five years around these people, like it. it wasn't nothing interesting was happening like we never talked about like the stuff that we talk about on on plan a and not just like the the race and politics stuff but like just the 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 level of like conversation we have was just vastly different and much more engaging for me Mm -hmm. right than the stuff that we would talk about at work um and like that kind of broke me a little bit. I was like, I don't, I don't want, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to spend another five years with with people like this. It's just not, you know. And these people are my friends. Like they're like my co-founders are like good friends of mine. We're still good mm-hmm. friends. Um, but I found it difficult to in, in, engage with them because it was the same shit all the time. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. There's a I, for all uh, for all people talk about tech or like to think of themselves. People who were in tech like to think of themselves as a uh, renegades or outsiders. Uh, you know, pioneers of some sort. Uh, like, let's. I think we have to be honest and say that no, this is a this is a fully developed industry now, um, and as such, yeah. it has its own culture, its own kind yeah. of uh, personalities that it uh, that it shapes and nurtures. The same way that we would talk about like Wall Street culture or med- medicine, like doctors, how medicine works for uh, for MDs, things like that. Um, I think tech mm-hmm. people are are uniquely in denial of that because we're all supposed to be kind of like thinking outside the box. We're all supposed to be uh, individualists, right? We're not supposed to just get our tastes out of uh, some magazine that tells us what we want to, what we need in, in pour over equipment or something. Um, so Yeah. It, there is this like insidious um, term that one of my co-founders would use all the time when describing people, especially like, potential hires that he would want to bring on the team and work with <laughs> and it's not a very it's not a very uncommon word it's it's the word um interesting like like to him like pe- people had to be interesting in some way right like if you didn't live in new york city you weren't mm-hmm. interesting if you didn't like you know read the like beowulf or whatever the fucking literature he was reading at the time you weren't considered like interesting like you know it there's this kind of value uh placement that they would do to other people right like not not just people we would hire but just like in conversation with them it got to this kind of level of almost elitism oh absolutely that i felt kind of uncomfortable being around um i don't know maybe maybe there is some like insecurity i have that i'm like i'm not sufficiently interesting because i don't like read as much shakespeare as you do or whatever the fuck right but like there was a there was some essence of that that like kind of made me sick of being around i mean yeah a little bit of that and also be like oh fuck you i can see through you too you know um uh yeah i know what you mean like it's interesting like um the the phrase culture fit always always raises my hackles yeah yes uh yes yeah they sound like they sound so benign right like 
when people talk about many many times in my life i've seen the term culture fit used as a placeholder for racism absolutely they basically use it as an excuse to be racist or sexist or whatever ableist right or whatever it's an exclusionary Um, term which is obvious from how uh from from what it it means that if you don't fit the pre-existing culture of said organization you don't belong Right. So it's right. So it actually runs right. counter to every to every uh, every bit of mythology that we have about ourselves as techies. Right. So we're not we're not looking for outsiders. We're not looking for a ragtag team of uh, true individualists. You're implicitly saying this is a, you want a homogenized workforce. Yeah. And and it's homogenized in like it's it's class, it's race, it's gender. Um it's it it all of all of those just combine in such in such toxic ways and gets presented as such a such a banal concept. Yeah, the 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 litmus test that uh, one of my co-founders had for like is this person a good you know culture fit for the company was the question: Would you like to have a beer with this person after work? Oh, Which God. sounds like a reasonable like it sounds like a reason you know you're saying are would you could you socialize with them could you stand being around them right like the, the kind of asking those basic questions but also to some extent it, it means like do they like are they you know for example are they not going to offend you right when you talk about yeah. whatever after work right mm-hmm. which which has has some kind of like um uh this this quality to it is a little bit um uh almost dangerous to some extent because you're hiring them you're going to be their their boss right mm-hmm. they're not going to speak up about things that they think might disturb you and so like it certainly wouldn't come up like you know over drinks after work kind of thing right, right. so you, you're really trying to fit people who, you're really trying to hire like yes men or people who are kind of like replicas of what you already have in the company that doesn't really expand the culture in any way right it makes it more of a bubble yeah um, to some extent. So it, it did feel like it, it became more and more like that because we keep hiring people who would fit that kind of, um, that kind of mold. Yeah. You're, it's, that's, that's tough. I, I, I know what yeah. you mean. I've seen that happen too. Um, I didn't really know how to articulate that until, yeah. until pretty recently actually. And then it all became clear like, Oh no, they're yeah. actually, they're actually giant. Uh, they're giant racist, classist, sexist jerks. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, you know, in, in the case of the people at the company, it didn't feel like they were they were giant racist, mm-hmm. sexist, whatever jerks, but they were. They, there was definitely elements of that, and it was hidden in different ways, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it's the thing. It's never overt. I think that's the thing about tech, right? I uh, I think it's mostly people who would self-identify as liberal with progressive views. So that's what makes mm-hmm. it so insidious. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be flying swastikas. Um, no, it, it emerges not. in way more subtler ways um, that can that can trap people who aren't looking for that in uh, badly before they're able to really realize what's going on. Yeah, we uh, we had this big debate and and like amongst the execs, uh, I don't know some some time some time ago where uh, the, the the question of like what are the company values, uh, you know, came up. And one thing that someone put out was like diversity, right? The word diversity. Mm-hmm. And I basically said to the team and like, I don't often, you know, speak out about this for a bunch of different reasons. But like, I basically said, I don't want us to put the word diversity on our like company 
values unless we actually act on it, right? <laughs> yeah. Unless we actually have some like reasonable plan to like hire diversely or whatever you think that means, mm-hmm. right? Um, because it's such a default thing for like companies, especially tech startups, to put that out there because it's part of the culture. It's like, oh, we had to have diverse teams and you know hire token people or whatever. So there's a big argument about that. And then you know the biggest champion of like trying to do this correctly wasn't necessarily me. It was like our, our CEO. He was like you know he's straight white guy like really cared about this. I think because all the BLM like protests were happening at the mm-hmm. time, right? He said he felt very kind of like. Um, uh, uh, guilted by that to some extent, mm-hmm. um, which I, I understand. You know, he was touting all this stuff about diversity hiring. And then we proceed to, after that, hire, I think, three, uh, four more people from that point, that conversation up to like when mm-hmm. I left. And they're all white guys, like every single <laughs> one of them. Uh-huh. Right? There is uh-huh. no, there is no, like, no <laughs> attempt whatsoever, despite, you know, some suggestions I gave around like, oh, we can like try to do some of these things that we, you know, the, the, that people suggest like reducing the number of like false negatives when you're hiring like people who are of a minority group mm-hmm. or whatever. Like none of that happened. None of that happened <laughs> at all. We hired like four more straight, straight white guys. And like, that was, that was, <laughs> that was diversity at, at my start. I bet they were all interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's 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 hard to tell these things too because you're all kind of like on Zoom. That's that true. Way, so. Yeah. Well, um, what a coincidence! All of them, huh? What a coincidence! Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll I'll say on this like kind of the personal side of like growing distant from my co-founders, coworkers, etc. is like at a at a personal level with my two direct co-founders. I found that they in, in inhabited some of the attributes you may see in other tech, like very much so like tech founders. Like they're, they're a little bit kind of like, they're liberal, but they're like a little bit kind of libertarian as well. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, they like, a lot of their thinking is kind of, um, not not fully like self-centered or selfish, but certainly like self-serving, opportunistic right. to some extent. Uh, and I'll give you an exact example, right? Because like the, the last call I had with them a few days ago before leaving, we we're talking about the, the pandemic, right? Because it always comes up. And we we're talking about um, like the vaccine, right? Because the vaccine started rolling out in, in Canada and the mm-hmm. US. And both of them were basically like talking about, almost gloating about, the different kind of like ways or like like plans they have to try to skip the line. Oh and no! Uh-huh. Get, the, get the vaccine for themselves and like their girlfriends or whatever. Um, ahead of you know, frontline workers, seniors, you know, people with like uh, health predisposition predispositions and all this stuff. Right. They, they were like both talking about this idea of like getting in the first third. I didn't know what that meant, but I guess they like, you know, in the States, they're rolling out, um, you know, to the first 10, 100 million, second 100 million, third 100 million. They were try- like trying to figure out how to get into the first third, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that they're both like very healthy guys in their early 30s with like no real issues. Right. Um, and, you know, they're plotting like how to do it, like, either in Canada or the U S like they, they, you know, can freely move between the two countries despite the, the, the border closure we, we apparently have. And, and that, I don't know, that whole thing just like 
summed up what was a bit kind of disturbing about the the mismatch that I had with my kind of personal values that had changed over the four years um, and like what they they cared about. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying that like all tech co-founders, like male tech co-founders are like this, but like that kind of thinking, it felt like what you'd expect, you know, the typical like asshole CEO to have, you know what I'm saying? Like the, yeah, I would expect a lot of the people that I worked with, um, ours are doing the exact same thing right now, scheming. And it's very, it's very self-centered. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of self-centeredness that, uh, that, um, even though it's a, it's, it's, it might be about an isolated issue, you know, a once in a century pandemic or whatever, it does carry over into how they carry themselves in their business decisions uh, and their personal lives and, uh, and how they conduct, uh, and who they are as professionals too. I think it all, it all adds up. One, one question I had when I left, you know, Google to, to do the startup like one kind of joke, but also jokey, jokey, but also serious question I had was, can you be successful at business without being an asshole? Like, I, I don't actually know the answer to that question. <laughs> right. See, I, you, I think the answer is no, like you can't, you have to be an asshole to somebody. Um, but it's a question of who I think. Um, yeah. I think we're in an unprecedented moment where to be successful in business, uh, maybe across the board, uh, but I'll speak to what I know in tech. It seems like you have to be an asshole to everyone. You have to screw over your workers. You have to screw over your customer base to some extent, to some or greater extent. Um, there's, yeah. there's, there's, uh, I'm sure the relationship is always antagonistic, but it can be antagonistic in productive and complementary ways, right? Like if there's a strong re regulatory system, uh, like business is supposed to kind of see what it can get away with, but, but like regulations and the government kind of create the superstructure in which it can, like business can flourish. We've, mm -hmm. we've crossed that Rubicon a long time ago, I think, um, so they're in either an openly antagonistic relationship um, or uh, one is completely subordinate to the other. Neither, right. neither is great. Um, the era of customer is king is, uh, is coming, is, has come to an end, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and, but the, but the, but now we're just coming to the, like we're talking about like Uber, DoorDash, these recent big, um, these recent big unicorns. Um, then we're talking about the biggest group of people you're screwing over are workers. The people who have to make a living based on your service. Yeah, for sure. But, but not just like, you know, at the, at the operational level, like, you know, the screwing over entire populations of people, but the, the, you know, the, um, they kind of heroes from the startup world, right? Like the founders, mm -hmm. the CEOs. More often than not, it feels like you, I don't know, I guess maybe, it, you know, it, it makes for a great headline to say that like Travis Kalanick of Uber was like a crazy, a crazy boss who treated his employees poorly, yada, yada, yada. But it feels like it happens so often. Like it feels like you always hear about like shitty bosses, mm -hmm. shitty CEOs, shitty founders. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And that, that kind of like, I, I tried to not be one. I'm sure there's some, in some ways I was like, you know, there's definitely times when I like lost my temper, maybe around employees and stuff. Like I feel really bad about that, but, 
you know, I, I don't know, like maybe to some extent, I feel like the semi failure of like the, of, of my company to some extent, if, if you can think of it as a failure came from like us not pushing hard enough, which means like maybe not being enough of a dick to people who you need to be dicks to, right? Either be it customers or employees or whatever, like maybe you do need to have this hierarchy where you're taking advantage of people to some extent in order to have personal success. That's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting at. I, I don't know if it's true or not. I, I didn't really get an answer from that's the last tough... five years. Because uh, I, I did see a lot of like ash, that's asshole That's a tough question. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a good answer for that myself. Um, obviously, I don't run a big company or anything close to that right now. I'm a self-funded little, little code shop basically right now. Um, but I mean... The, the terrain, as I see it, is so uh, dysfunctionally antagonistic to everybody. Uh, like we just we we talked about the VC model, which I think is a a predatory model, um, a, a disturbing amount of the time. It's mm-hmm. well funded entities that are kind of strip mining, like churning young companies, uh, and it's real. It's a real shame. Like I see a lot of young startups. Um, that I think could have a lot of potential if they are given the right timeline for growth, the right uh, pacing, the right resources to grow, but not strictly, but not put on the like death march mm-hmm. to profitability uh, that the VCs like to put them on, bec- on the off chance that one out of their you know five hundred investments turns into the next um, Facebook or Uber or something. So a lot of companies that I think had a great chance. Uh, at being solid performers got totally undermined by this model. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah. 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 I I mean, not only does the model not promote sustainability, it, it, I think it also promotes like potentially people with like bad personalities mm-hmm. uh, to make it to the top. Cause you have to be ruthless. You have to be, I don't know, maybe you don't have to be. I would love to, to someone tell me like you don't have to be. And I'm sure there's examples of people who, who are not, right? But there's plenty of examples out there of people who are absolutely ruthless in, in the market or to their employees or to their co-founders or whatever. I think you right? have to be a total sociopath to be able to make it in this climate. I really do think so. <laughs> um, like, yeah. uh, like, and I think to, to a big extent, politicians too i think we're, we're selecting for we've created a system that selects for complete sociopaths like we project so much onto people like that we're not just expecting like i say this a lot in the discourse around facebook especially around the election disinformation all of that um because uh-huh. we now start projecting morality like we expect these leaders to be moral leaders um Probably that was always true to, to a greater or lesser extent. But now when everyone's so hyper-visible, um, like the arguments on Facebook take such a moral turn. Like Mark Zuckerberg is personally evil or um, for, the, for the direction that Facebook has right. gone in or, or something. Or, you know, when we talk about politicians, like Donald Trump is so uniquely evil in and of himself. Not to say that he might not, he is or isn't. I'm saying that the discourse revolves around morals when these are in fact people at doing jobs, right? Um, 
So right, I think, right. I mean, and we look at like, I think now we're doing like people uh, are really taking a hard look at like, uh, like President Obama, for example, who was very loved in his time, uh, had a very popular presidency, mm-hmm. who was able to project the image mm-hmm. of being a caring, empathetic, kind person. And then you look at his record and like this, this, he, wow, he drone bombed weddings for breakfast. Um so yeah. that's complete sociopath behavior, right? The complete the ability to completely uh, manipulate one's image and have image and action be completely um, like completely different things. Um, so I think we're actually punishing these these bad boy CEOs for not being sociopathic enough <laughs> because they got caught. They were too obvious. Obama is, has Obama's one of the most popular presidents in living in living memory, and he's also one of the bloodiest, mm-hmm. right? So I think we're 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 trying to select for leaders who can do both: be completely ruthless leaders, but act like they care. Like I think Tim Cook is a good example of someone who's doing it quote correctly, uh, and that's a really bad thing I think for society. We're not, we're not, we're not uh, selecting for like genuinely like innovative or you know human led or human focused growth companies. We want, we want the cheap Uber rides, and we also want Travis Kalanick to be a nice guy. Right, you're you're optimizing for people who, in the case of business, can grow capital. In the case of politics, maybe who can grow empire. Yes, right. Yes, but also sell it. And you sell that by being um, the relatable guy, you know, the yeah. guy you want to drink a beer with after after work. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that because that's such a that's such a political a cliche political litmus test. Uh, I don't know if it is in Canada, but definitely here in the United States, I heard it a lot for uh, for the Bush years. Like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, Bush Bush is is great because he seems relatable. I would like to drink beer with him. Um, yeah. That's, that's definitely been said about Biden versus Trump, but that's an obvious one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, so the depressing answer is, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think you, you can grow a company to stratospheric uh, heights without pulling some true sociopath um, stunts. Like the founder of um, WeWork, Adam Newman, gotta bring him up yeah i mean that guy was like a straight-up cult leader yeah he, he he's a prototypical example of that at this point mm-hmm. right like the the amount of hold he had over the people who work for him the all the like the, the the fact that really they were like you know uh softbank and others were putting money on him and his charisma more than like we work in the business model and the profits or whatever the revenue mm-hmm. the obviously a faltering business on um, entirely pinning it on this charismatic dude right so it seems like a big component of uh, this game now is you're not wooing customers you're wooing the vcs you're wooing investors um which is which is a complete inversion of of, of capitalism in this case or what we would typically think of as capitalism. Oh, how how so? Like play, play um, it out for me. 
like the idea, like we still trot out the myth of like the gar- the garage innovator, right? Like Steve Jobs, right, right, and Steve right. Wozniak, yeah. cranking out apples in their garage and selling it. Like that mm-hmm. sells out, and they just they iterate on that and build it up to be you know the two trillion behemoth it is today. Um, mm-hmm. The path to success now. Um, you don't go through that. You go through some of that, of course. You try to build an organic following, but it seems like the business model that uh, that a lot of companies are trained to uh, um, to follow is you're actually keeping an eye on what VC, what investors, what VCs, private equity, uh, angel investors, whatever, uh, what they want out of this. So you're not actually keeping a true eye on the market on it, or anything you consider the market. You're keeping an eye on what they think the market is. Yeah, there was a there was a good recent article in the New York Magazine, I think, of all places, that was talking about how, like, capitalist countries like the U.S. are centrally planned, but they're planned by VCs. They're planned by like PE firms and the big money holders. That's, I mean, that's um, true. Yeah, that's precisely kind of what you're saying. Um, so there's no real there's I. Um, like Facebook might have been the last like organically grown behemoth. I think it'll be interesting to see what social media does in uh, in this uh, in this era. Um, yeah. Like, and it's I mean, that, I mean that 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 one's actually an interesting one because that one actually subverts what I just said a little bit. Uh, like, what was that short-lived a video sharing startup that opened and closed this Quibi? Quibi, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, there, there was a ton of money went into that. Yeah, like, a almost shit a, ton. a billion bucks or something. Yeah, like a, a ton of money from very, very well um, known, established Silicon Valley and entertainment people. Um, they right. dumped a ton of money into it and could not get anywhere. They just could not drive um, users to their platform. Um, and on the other hand, you know, TikTok, which isn't even an American company and just completely swept uh, swept its shores. And apparently Trump, which, you know, it went from like public enemy number one to completely forgotten <laughs> in like two, yeah, in like yeah. three weeks. It was- yeah, to the point where the, the TikTok team had to reach out to the Trump administration and said, hey, are we still on for this lawsuit? Or oh, like, my, I was howling. <laughs> what? They had to be like, um, guys, are we what, are we doing this? What's going on? <laughs> I guess not. I, I so I, I don't. They're, so they're still independently run, right? They didn't have to sell to Microsoft or Oracle or anything. I mean, I don't know, but that's just really like like a telltale sign that the media has completely forgotten about this whole right? kerfuffle. No one's and, thinking, and nothing has happened. Yeah, right? um, but again, I mean, I mean that that it was also a very well funded. Um, platform that's came to the u.s with a good hefty amount of uh uh it's it's not an upstart little garage application by any means but still it didn't go through the traditional um through the traditional networks um america to to drive american adoption um yeah there is there is no like singular or like you know pair of bootstrapping americans in a garage mm -hmm. kind of thing like that that did not happen and that continues to not happen so long as we have this model where, you know, you you start off because you manage to get into YC and raise like $10 million and then try to monopolize a market before it even exists kind of thing. Like it's very different the way it's played out than how we imagine entrepreneurs and like, you know, startup co-founders mm-hmm. doing things. So uh, yeah, everyone, everyone has to be more of an MBA than um, an engineer in this case to have a viable to have a viable product. 
Um, so it's a, it's it's a tough market for it's a tough market for people who actually have that entrepreneurial bug. Um, so I I I mean I I find it a tough road to walk. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to like sugarcoat it for anyone who was curious. It's very rewarding in my experience, but um, it's just not a it's just not a good environment right now. I don't know, and I don't see yeah. real change on the horizon either. That's that's basically where where my head's at. Like going back to talking about like speaking your mind, I'm I'm pretty open now that I'm done. <laughs> when people ask me about how I feel about these things, I feel like a lot of it is about giving a a warning to not that a lot of people I know are like trying to get into break into like tech startups or whatever, but like to to tell the truth about all the shitty things that happen behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Um, you know, in addition to the good things too, right? Cause like, I obviously learned a whole fuck ton during the five years. I had a lot of crazy adventures, definitely <laughs> yeah. did a lot. I would not have done at my, uh, at my, at my, you know, big tech job. Um, I don't regret those parts of it. I regret some things and not others, but like, there's definitely a lot of shit that goes wrong that people don't talk about, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to some extent getting better at talking about failures if you want to call it a failure is is a good exercise i think um that you get a bit of humility out of it people get to learn better lessons out of it you know mm-hmm. um i i think that that's a little bit um underestimated in some cases yeah i mean um it seems like a successful run though yeah I, I, like again like, it depends on what your goals are if your goals are to like have a have an adventure learn interesting things that you wouldn't learn mm-hmm. working at a big company that was a huge that was a resounding success mm-hmm. if my goal is to like come out with like a hundred million dollars in in my pocket that was <laughs> not a success which is, which is fine uh-huh. right uh-huh. um you know if my if my goal was to like completely change the restaurant industry that did not happen or has not happened yet while i was there that's i'm okay with that too mm-hmm. you know but also that's that's also not my goal anymore the goal is not to like fucking roboticize all of fast food restaurants like i don't want to do that anymore right, right. so you know like the, there's also that aspect to it too um i i don't know if it, if it took doing the startup for five years to learn that it, it's always nicer when you can learn those lessons sooner but I, I would encourage any entrepreneur who like gets their kind of compass, call it a moral compass or a values compass or whatever, reset at some point to 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 take to take advantage of that sooner than later. Because realistically, you don't have a lot of time to work on these things, right? Like there is a reality at some point I might end up getting another corporate job because I have to raise a family or like start paying the bills again or whatever the problem might be, right? Like we still have mm-hmm. to live in those constraints um but for those who do have that as we we're saying earlier that that leverage or that opportunity or privilege to to do something you know a little bit entrepreneurial there's better things to do than selling wine racks on amazon so many i mean the yeah. like i i think it's easy to lose track of just how young uh how young it all is right uh it's an established it 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 came up in a hurry, right? Like, but the industry as it really is, is, is not even like 40 years old. Um, so a lot has happened in that time and nothing actually was, nothing in that, in that span was actually predetermined, 
right? There's a lot of different forks in the road that could have been taken that led us down different, that could have led to different outcomes in terms of how the how the culture of the internet developed, you know, the, the software tech that's available to us, um, all of this. Yeah. It's, all, it's all social, it's all cultural, it's legal. I think people underestimate the importance of laws in shaping our tech culture as well. Um, but nothing is set in stone here. Like the way we do things is not, uh, it's absolutely not a, the way we should be doing things, not by a long shot. Um, and B it's definitely not the, not. it's not, it's definitely not the only way, um, we, we, sh- we can or should be doing these things too. Um, that, I mean, that's a big statement and I'm sure people are like, what the hell? Um, I can clarify if anyone asks, <laughs> but that's just, but that's, it's vague because I'm describing a huge, an actually huge uncharted terrain of possibility and yeah. development. Uh, we've, we've, we've terraformed the shit out of a relatively narrow patch of what we would mm-hmm. call like software or, you know, the internet, so as uh, as wide ranging and as deep and penetrating it has been and important to us as people, that's still just a small fragment of what could be. Um, and to push that needle takes a lot of people who are motivated to think about problems in that in that in that way. Uh, there's no shortage of uh, there's no shortage of problems to to think about or to solve in that space. It's unclear how to make a buck from it. That's, that's, that's a real issue. Uh, but the problems are definitely not all solved. And I certainly don't, and given how things have shaken out, I don't want the same kinds of people who have led us to this point to take us to the next point. I don't want the next wave of tech to be dominated by like uh, scam artists who are racing to <laughs> pick low wage workers pockets and crush whole industries. I don't want to see another, I don't want to see Spotify, another Spotify model or a DoorDash or an Uber. I think these are socially destructive and um, fundamental, they're destructive. So they're not, they're not going to, they're not innovations that spur further innovations, right? Um, They're not, they're not enriching socially. Uh, They will enrich very few, just one or two people at the very, very top, basically. Mm And just crush the life out of you know everything it touches, in general. So I, I mean, these are these are big issues. So if, if you know, there's people who want to be thinking about them, there's ample room, and the more the merrier on that side. Yeah, we gotta we gotta expand our imaginations. I I think that that's basically what I'm planning on doing before I hop into the next job or startup or whatever is like try to expand the imaginations a bit more because like all the other shit back then, like you said, is very narrow spec you know it's like the 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 whole like iceberg the the whole iceberg like visual metaphor of like you're only seeing the tip and underneath the water is this like massive thing it Mm -hmm. feels like we're kind of there yeah still like like uh like i don't know one thing that i'm working on now just as an example um like people talk about you know like facebook right big centralized social media apps and we're coming up i think on some real boundaries for mm-hmm. the limits of that model right where everything is kind of aggregated and there's a and it all has to be um filtered sorted and uh, and now judged by people at facebook right um adjudicated like what content is considered disinformation right this is a huge issue uh, that's relevant to our times right now. Uh, the problem that I see it is we've we're we're not fundamentally challenging why Facebook has the power to be able to declare something disinformation or not. 
Um, and mm-hmm. that's, but that's not a, that's not a moral failing of Mark Zuckerberg's necessarily. This is a this is um, one of the outcomes of a centralized model for data, a privatized central model where all data is kind of funneled into one central location. Um, so you know, there's a, there are alternative models for that, like distributed computing distributed communications where information does not live on a central server somewhere and is not owned by say one entity or one person. Um, this is now, this is possible with the technology we have now. Um, it's difficult to see how to monetize that, but I, I, I mean, it's one of the projects that I'm working on to kind of see what can be, what can be done when uh, information is not, uh, is not, cannot be owned by one single entity um so you're going up against uh the big zuck eh? is that your plan jess a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> uh yeah i mean not not directly but it's uh but it's like uh you don't take down you're not gonna uh, i fully support the new wave of lawsuits to to uh <laughs> to constrain Facebook, right? Uh, but that's more that's that's, right. that's more business model, in my opinion, not so much information or. Uh, right. I, I thought I thought you meant I thought you meant like the, the big wave of uh, lawsuits coming your way from from Facebook oh, in the near future if you should see some success. I hope not. I I, I hope not. That would be really scary for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but Facebook right now is facing litigation for anti-competitive practices, um, which has yeah, which has right. um, real exciting. Um, um, possibilities for other people in the tech industry. Uh, for a long time, these big companies were allowed to just like buy up, you know, small, comp- small, not even competitors, just small companies that uh, that they felt were, you know, would were stepping on their toes a little or could in the future, and just buying them and crushing them, or yeah. you know, or not not even buying them, just crushing them, just, just like crushing replicating them. their shit, yeah, replicating their yeah. shit and crushing them. Um, and so this puts a bit of a constraint on that. Um, so that's really exciting. That's this allows more of a an actually competitive marketplace of ideas and products that uh, that people can that consumers can enjoy, which has a bit mm-hmm. more of a there's a bit more of democratic control over what uh, gains prominence in that kind of marketplace. So you know, as it's it's been like looking back, I don't think I realized until like recently. But looking back, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this too. Like. Um, like in the 10 years since I've been working, uh, more or less post, uh, post grad school, um, it has been a period of, uh, of, uh, decline, like moral and intellectual decline, um, that has had, that we, and I think we're starting to see the real social ramifications of that. Um, but, uh, so it's the way it is now is not hopeful, but I do see possibilities for the near future. I mean, I think COVID changed a lot of things for um, uh, for a lot of people. I think people are starting to think a little bit more deeply about these issues, especially with the tech that they use and the in, and uh, and social implications. So I don't know. I'm I'm still optimistic. Yeah, I think there's like there's there's two possible outcomes from like. The 2020 doom scrolling we've all been doing, right? Like either you look at all this bad news and you say, "Oh fuck, I'm not going to start a company in this environment. I'm not going to try to change the world." It's all on the way down. There's nothing to to fix. Like everything's dominated by you know Facebook, Google, whatever. And then you give up. Or the other option is to look at it and say, "There's a whole lot of shit we need to fix," and mm-hmm. actually take up the challenge of doing it, 
right? Rather than replicating like tried and old shitty models that will will make you maybe personally well off or decently well off, but not actually benefit anyone else. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of a big takeaway. Like you do have to have a little bit of like optimism coming out of it. Um, I know we're generally not an optimistic pod, but like I feel optimistic. Like I I'm I'm leaving my company because I am optimistic about being able to do something better uh, than like you know putting more money in fast food CEO's pockets. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need a little bit more of that uh, from folks. So uh, yeah, well said. That's that's my that's my take too. Like trying to be realist, like a realistic person in terms of the very real risks. Um, that are that are absolutely out there and the the dysfunction the absolute sheer uh brokenness (laughs) of a lot of the people and business models out there and a lot of the tech honestly we have so much tech debt it's it's insane um tech debt is just uh shorthand for like really bad stuff out there code hardware Mm -hmm. we have a lot of that going around but um, on the other hand, you know, like all, all these like too big to fail companies, um, there were other periods in time when other industries appeared bulletproof too. So like history just keeps marching forward, right? Like um, nothing is forever. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm really happy for you. I feel like this is a. I feel like a, this is this was a good step, a very carefully considered step. Um, so Thank you. yeah, yeah. yeah. I hope you Thank have you for uh, letting me vent uh, at you. <laughs> oh yeah, my pleasure. I mean, we've been trying to we've been trying to do something like this for a long time. Uh, just schedules not lining up, and you know, you know, twenty twenty, etc. So it, felt, to, it feels good, really good. good to do. A, yeah, good to do a one on one with someone who like kind of knows the space and stuff, right? Because mm-hmm. like a lot again, like I think go back to you know both both our reasons for leaving these jobs is like speaking our mind. Like I felt like I couldn't really speak my mind from on a bunch of different levels, so. it's nice to uh to be able to connect with somebody and like actually talk through it yeah yep that's that's got to feel pretty good should we wrap it up yep that sounds like a good place to wrap it up okay well yeah yep this was uh this was this week's episode of escape from plan a thanks guys see you later later